I you want to run him? Listen to me. I asked you to step over there because there's a gun on scene and not Where a phone. Where you see a gun at? I don't even have no weapon on me. This is my phone, sir. Guess who called me and said there's a gun? Okay. And you can't look in my car. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I said you can't look in that car. You can't, yeah, you can't even look in that car. You can't even look. Yeah, you're right. You down skipping. You can't look in that car, sir. I can look anywhere I want. No, you cannot. You cannot look in that car. What are you going to do about it? Hey, I ain't doing nothing, sir. You ain't got to show nobody got to look at nothing. I'm not going to sit here and go back and forth with you all triangulating hey, on me when there are guns everywhere. Hey, bro. You and, I, and neither one of us got no weapon on us. So what are you talking about? Some dangerous, bro. I got a question. He Why pulled up talking? on us. That's dangerous. Why are you talking? What the hell you mean? You hell you talking about? Talk. I got the right, bro. You tripping. This is Race Capital, where we interrogate racial narratives in our space, place, and time of so-called Richmond, Virginia, the falling capital of the Confederacy. You're listening to Race Capital on the week of September 8th, 2021. And today, me and co-host Kalia Harris skipped the reframe and talked to community organizers about increased surveillance and policing in public housing neighborhoods in Richmond. Now, what you just heard was an interaction between the RRHA so-called public safety director and RPD officer and a black father simply trying to see his kids. Now, this is just a glimpse into the terror and intimidation families in Richmond's public housing units are being subjected to as both RPD and BCUPD continue to find new ways to criminalize black communities. Just within the last month, five license plate readers, or LPRs, were installed in public housing neighborhoods in other areas that black people frequent. Now we know that the police and their surveillance are the only obstacles to creating safe communities for black people. Yet the city continues to inject more cops into our neighborhoods with the sole intention of separating families and restricting our autonomy. This is not by accident. This is a deliberate design within Richmond's infrastructure used to sustain Virginia's long-held legacy of slaveocracy. As Richmond's budget is funneled into weapons of incarceration, such as police helicopters and surveillance cameras, things like transportation, education, and housing are left to fail. And those who are unable to fill the gaps left by the city are driven into conditions that make them more vulnerable to policing and subsequently imprisonment. So let it be known that while the Lee Monument is set to come down today, the violent institutions born out of his racist legacy remain. The tradition of colonialism that says the land is something to be propertied and policed, that says that people of African descent are a better use to the state when locked in chains and cages, has not been shaken. Despite all these performative acts coming out of the political class, the values established under European colonization and upheld by the Confederacy can be found within the walls of the John Marshall Courthouse, the Richmond City Jail, and even within the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority. Now, following the global outcry against policing during last summer, it should be clearly understood that wherever black communities rise up, these reformed slave masters crack down. So let's get into it. Stay tuned to hear from our guests, Johansi Whitaker of Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project and Omari Al-Qaddafi of Legal Aid Justice Center as we talk about the history and legacy of policing and public housing, the current situation, and its implications for Black liberation, 
self-determination, and autonomy in the future. Stay tuned, stand up, and struggle forward. the show, Johanse. Can you tell us a bit about who you are and your work? Yeah. Yeah. First, I'm really happy to be with y'all. You know, y'all are doing such important work and are in the tradition of Ida B. Wells, who, you know, taught us the importance of independent Black press and sounding the alarm, creating our own narratives, and raising our consciousness to the local and global concerns of oppressed people so really, like, truly thank y'all for, for the work. I'm a community organizer with the Legal Aid Justice Center. And in that role, I support the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project, whose mission it is to build healthier, safer neighborhoods in Richmond by disrupting mass incarceration at its source, police policies, and procedures. And for over four years, RTAP has been among the groups leading the charge on resisting increased surveillance and increased policing. And uh, right now we are in the middle of a campaign to support the establishment of a Richmond specific civilian oversight board among another, and you know, also being involved in a number of other issues like the license plate readers that, um, you know, RPD wants to put up in Black and Brown neighborhoods. Yes, we love the CRB task force and are excited about the work that they are doing and putting out their recommendations to the city. So hopefully the listeners can stay updated on what's going on there. Thank you so much for your work in helping that to come to fruition. So we've heard the news about the license plate readers that you're talking about, Johanse that are being installed in public housing neighborhoods in the city. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on and how this came to be? Yeah, you know, I think when we are talking about our contemporary moments of resisting police abuse and surveillance, that we've got to go back to the beginning. And, you know, historians have done a lot of great work talking about how, and illustrating, you know, how policing has functioned in our current moment and also historically to surveil and contain Black people, people of color, and the poor, both in the United States and globally. And, you know, the ways that policing and criminalization have worked together to suppress Black and Brown people you know, globally and locally. And, you know, in the Constitution, law enforcement is given the right to suppress insurrection and invasion. And for as long as this country and its antecedents have been operating, Black people and other marginalized groups have been labeled as insurrectionists, criminals, and domestic threats to the social order. And, you know, our laws from the very beginning 
have empowered police and, you know, everyday white citizens to constantly be on the lookout for Black resistance, Black organizing, and anything that they deem to be a threat to, you know, or violation of their social order, which we know is white supremacy. And thinking about even after, you know, emancipation, how there were a set of laws, the Black codes that were you know, written and formulated that specifically targeted Black people that only Black people, you know, could be convicted of. And thinking about also the forces that came together to influence our contemporary moment, you know, like the war on drugs and the war on gangs and the war on crime that we saw from the late 1950s to the late 1990s, where we saw a rise in predictive and proactive policing with, you know, all levels of government funding and incentivizing new technologies in policing, while at the same time in the media and in the press that they control, you know, in the official narratives, you know, of stoking fears of Black crime, Black rebellion, Black unrest. And so in Richmond, all of those factors have been at work and have brought us to this contemporary moment where if you go to public housing neighborhoods, you'll see for the most part, Black and Brown folks, they've been, you know, contained and isolated in in certain areas here in Richmond, treated as second-class citizens, given second-class housing, the first, either they're the last to be hired and the first to be fired, right? And so those communities are economically constrained, you know, even isolated through transportation. You know, I was talking with someone recently and they were telling me that it takes two hours by bus to get from Fulton to downtown Richmond, when at most that's what a a, a 10 minute drive, right? So there are areas in Richmond that are isolated and, you know, the communities are oppressed by policing and the powers that be. And, you know, the Department of Justice awarded a grant to the Richmond Police Department and the Sheriff's Office that allowed the Richmond Police Department to purchase license plate readers. So again, we see how funding and incentives from the federal government, you know, that support these predictive policing technologies, you know, come into our our neighborhoods while at the same time the Richmond Police Department, according to its own data that I do not think, you know, should be trusted, is saying that there is this spike in violent crime in Richmond, which we shouldn't be surprised that they're doing this because, you know, last year we saw a summer of unrest and and, and, and uprisings. So it's, I mean, we've been here before, right? So that's, that's what's, that's, I think, some of what got us here and, and where we are. But I, yeah, I'm, I hear a lot of opposition when I'm talking to community members, you know, around the license plate readers and just surveillance in general, you know, people, 
deserve to be able to live without the threat of punishment and folks deserve to live without being watched every hour of the day. So, you know, the community members that I've talked to tell me that the police, and I've seen this, are, are, are constantly driving through their neighborhoods, sometimes three or four officers in one vehicle looking for any reason to stop someone or to encounter someone. And, you know, folks tell me that this creates a, you know, a feeling of inferiority that they can't be trusted to govern themselves, that the police are watching to make sure that no one steps out of line or, you know, no one is acting uppity. And, and, and this is the type of daily abuse that unfortunately some people see as, as normal, but it's, it's this, it's, we've really got to, to organize and, and come together to resist these types of, of invasions in, in, in black and brown life. Yeah, that was so powerful. And, and I think something that you touched on earlier that really spoke to me is that, you know, a lot of the times when we're talking about the fact that our communities are over-policed or are policed, people just think it means getting arrested. But when you were speaking about the bus and the transportation issue, it's also the geographic design and the structural design where when you're living in public housing, you're five minutes away from RCJC or the so-called Richmond City Justice Center, but 15 minutes away from a grocery store and other life-sustaining resources um, that are going to lead people uh, to act in desperate manners and then have those uh, the behaviors be criminalized by law enforcement. So I think that was really powerful that you uh, pointed that out. Yeah, I, I'm thinking more about what you said about the geographic containment of our communities and how the Richmond City Jail or a police department or a cemetery, you know, if you go to many of the public housing neighborhoods and you look what's around them, you know, just what does that say, you know, to folks growing up in those neighborhoods about their, their possibilities and, and their options for life? when you've got all of these death-dealing institutions around you and, and what message that those institutions and, the, and those buildings are, are communicating. Yeah, wow. Are you able to go a little bit more into depth about why are LPRs such a problem? Are license plates readers, why, why are we raising the alarm when it comes to implementing this tool? I will answer your question by way of you know, sharing some of the experiences and stories that folks have have told me. Yeah, there, so there was a man who uh, was in a public housing neighborhood, and it's been his neighborhood for all of his life, and he, he grew up there. And he was talking to some friends on the street about, you know, ways that they could overcome some of the challenges and struggles that they were facing uh, related to drug addiction. And he was telling and, and sharing with them his own experiences of how he, you know, was able to overcome his own drug addictions and to change and, and shape his life to be focused on helping other people and making the lives of other people better. And while he's doing this, an RPD cruiser drives by and tells them to disperse and to go into their homes. And, you know, the folks who are out there, like, you know, they're like, what do you mean? This is our home. We've all grown up here. We live here. 
and we, you know, been raising our families here. And so their first instinct is to ignore the officers and, you know, carry on with, with, with their business because they, you know, they don't want any, any trouble. And so then the officers get out of the car, they approach the small group of folks and they tell them to disperse. And so, you know, right, none of these community people have been trained in de-escalation strategies or received training about how to handle this situation. But, you know, at the time they thought it best to walk away, not cause a scene. And while they are dispersing, as they were asked to do, an RPD officer throws this this man to the ground and puts his knee on this gentleman's neck in a way that he told me was eerily similar to the way that George Floyd was was murdered. And when he saw the video, it brought back for him the, you know, the trauma of his own incident, right? And so if you are in any affluent or white neighborhood in, in Richmond, and you're talking to your friends and your neighbors, you're not going to be stopped by a police officer who's telling you to disperse and, and go into your homes, right? That's not how policing happens in Windsor Farms or in, in, in Carytown or wherever. And this only happens because of the ways that RPD is policing because they're aggressively targeting and they're constantly in these black and brown neighborhoods, increasing people's chances of encountering the police, experiencing trauma, being arrested and incarcerated. And so the license plate readers is another way that RPD is inserting itself into the lives of black and brown folks. And I mean, literally the camera will be on 24 seven, capturing every license plate that it sees. We've not been told how the data will be used, how it will be stored. And frankly, people don't trust even, you know, even if we were to have these answers, I don't think people would trust them because they don't trust the police to use these technologies in ways that are beneficial to the community. And a lot of people are concerned that RPD will be proactively scanning license plates for warrants or other criminal legal system involvement. There have been, I've heard stories of kids and teenagers playing on bicycles or playing manhunt. When I, I mean, I'm not that old, but when I was growing up, we just called it hide and go seek. But anyway, right, you've got young people who are playing on their bikes and they're ducking behind cars or they're just trying to exist, right? Be Black kids. And suddenly RPD officers walk up to them and say, what are you doing hiding behind a car? What are you doing on this bicycle? Does this belong to you? Are you trying to steal this car while you're playing, you know, games with your friends? And these the incidents that I'm thinking of, Black children were put in handcuffs when their crimes, you know, were just being Black kids, you know, they, they, they've committed no crime, right, other than their skin color, which, you know, isn't, isn't a crime, but this country has deemed that to be criminal. And so you've got young people who are stopped and are experiencing trauma and are being deemed suspicious just for 
existing and, and, and playing games in their neighborhoods with their, with their friends. And when RTAP analyzed RPD's data in 27, you know, the data that RPD released from 2017 to 2018, that they only released, you know, after great, tremendous public pressure, that even though Black people comprise about 48% of Richmond, that Black people comprised 66 to 71% of all suspicious activity field interview reports. Black Wait, run back the statistic for Black folks one more time for us. Yeah, so Black people in Richmond are about 48% of, of the city, but Black people comprise 66 to 71% of all suspicious activities field interview reports. That's insane. And, you know, white people accounted for only 25% of, of those field interview reports, which means that Black people in Richmond are almost three times as likely to be perceived as suspicious. So what that tells me is that, you know, the stories of young children playing and, you know, ending up in handcuffs or the group of friends talking and trying to encourage each other, that those are not, you know, in being thrown to the ground by police officers, that tells me that these are not isolated events and that the system is not so much broken, but this, it's, this is intentional, the harm that is happening to young people of color, Black people, and under-resourced communities. And folks, I mean, just flat out don't trust RPD to use this technology in ways that are beneficial to the community and they don't trust, and people are opposed to, you know, this increased surveillance and the license plate readers going up in their neighborhoods. And the, the license plate readers are also planned to go up in the Shackle Bottom area and in, in the Southwood community in, in, in South Richmond. I'm thinking about the license plate readers and the, and the ways that traffic offenses are, are a way to incarcerate more Black people in that same report that RTAP released back in 2018, it found that Black people accounted for 75% of all traffic arrests from January 2017 to October 2018, meaning Black people were over 30 times more likely to be arrested of a traffic stop. Like, you know, I mean, literally like one in six Black people in Richmond have been stopped in a in, in a in a traffic related incident. So we can only imagine that the license plate readers are going to exacerbate the over-policing, the over-surveillance of black and brown communities because you know we're already deemed as as suspicious. Yeah, I mean, talk about the progressive plantation, right? I mean, this is straight out of slave code what you're talking about, especially in the way that during the antebellum era we have Black folks or African folks being policed for gathering, policed for laughing together. And what you're talking about when it comes to children, right? Uh, yeah. It's just, you know, it, it, it's one in the same, uh, a system that's just um, constantly been evolving and growing. And so I think it's really helpful that you have, you know, helped us see these clear connections to those laws. To, to your point, I mean, it, yeah, it, all, all of these institutions, you know, policing especially at its root is, is slavery. So 
Tell me how something that is so fundamentally racist, something that is so based on the enslavement of of black people, tell me how that can be reformed. I don't I don't think that that is that is possible. Well, can you give us a little rundown on specifically the legacy of policing and public housing in Richmond? Maybe talk about some of the other tools in addition to LPRs that have been used to kind of trap people in this cycle of surveillance, separation, and then um, ultimately incarceration. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an effort to escalate surveillance in Richmond's public housing neighborhoods. And I think that It is especially concerning considering the implementation of RPD's records management system with its ability to create profiles of people and to store footage. The RPD drone program that exists and by the last count that I am aware of, there are already 23 previously installed cameras in public housing neighborhoods in in Richmond. And Black folks in Richmond who live around BCU have also been sounding the alarm of cameras that are in their communities that can detect, for example, when gunfire has gone off and it'll alert the police And it's interesting because something that I've heard in public housing neighborhoods is that these cameras that have gone up already and that are are, are planned to go up have not in any meaningful way increased folks' safety. It's not made people feel better about their living conditions. It's not improved the quality of their lives. And so I think RPD and RRHA and other city leaders should really evaluate the effectiveness of of their camera programs, because what they're saying is, you know, this will stop crime or this will decrease this and that crime or behavior from happening. And people have not experienced that. Now, when I talk to people who live in Richmond public housing communities and I ask them about what safety means to them, they tell me that safety means after-school programs for youth, vibrant community centers like the Calhoun Center, fully stocked refrigerators, meaningful employment opportunities, and strong family connections, just to name a few things. No one has told me that increased surveillance is safety to them. Thank you for sharing those solutions that folks in the community are sharing, because that is what we should be investing in and listening to. So I'm wondering if there are ways that we can can resist the continued surveillance in the city. Are there opportunities to look out for? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of them is to push city leaders who claim to care about safety is to push them to demonstrate that care 
by taking actions to invest in and not criminalize our communities. And so, you know, we just finished talking about some solutions that have come directly from folks in Richmond's public housing communities. And so those are the things that we ought to be investing in. I think that we need to be watching carefully how the campaigns to establish civilian oversight go in, in, in Richmond, because we want to be clear that it should be a first step towards police accountability and transparency. You know, it should give us access to data that is currently hidden behind the shroud of policing. And it should be something that, you know, shifts power and decision-making away from policing and to black and brown communities. And uh, we wanna be sure that if Richmond is to have civilian oversight, that it's done in such a way, you know, that is building power in black and brown communities. I think that we also want to get connected to and join organizations that are resisting surveillance and in organizations that are building and creating the conditions and the solutions for community care that are coming from directly impacted people, which is why, you know, there's a, which is, it's, it's so important to me that there is a existing mutual aid effort in Gilpin Court that Keisha Cummings and Tanoa Thurston have worked on for a long time in connection with the RVA MAD. And, you know, they're providing food and cleaning supplies and, and, and other family necessities to folks in, in Gilpin Court. There's the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project, who is, is, is always striving to take its lead from directly impacted people. And there will be mobilizations in the near future pushing city council to enact civilian oversight that would actually be beneficial for our communities. And there'll be some other educational events to be on the lookout for. And when those events and opportunities materialize, we'll be sure to let folks know about them. Thank you, Johanse. So as we kind of wrap up, can you just let us let the audience know, you know, where they can continue to follow and support as well as the work of RTAP? Yeah, so uh, the Richmond Transparency and, Accountab- and Accountability Project, its email is richmondvatap, it's, so it's richmondvatap at gmail.com. It's also richmondvatap on Twitter and richmondvatap.org on the interwebs. And those are, are the best ways to get in, in contact with us. And then my email is Johanse, Y-O-H-A-N-C-E, at justiceforall.org. Well, Johanse, thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing so much perspective and ways for us to take action on this surveillance issue in our community. And we'll be happy to have you back anytime. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been glad to be with you all. So thanks for your time and thanks for the work.
You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Welcome back to the show, Omari. Hey. For those who are new to the show, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Omari El Qaddafi. I'm a community organizer. Right now, um, most of my work is around housing. Uh, I work with Legal Aid Justice Center as an organizer, connecting the resident community to the legal community, making sure people know their rights. Um, in the Richmond area, and just letting them know about the resource of legal aid, free legal assistance, letting people in the community know about it. But um, I also do uh, work in uh, food justice and transportation equity, issues of economic equity and um, oppression of Black people, just things that touch me and the community and people around me, you know? So sometimes I'm not, I'm going on and on, but like, it's hard to like put it into like uh, just boxes, you know? You engaged in the struggle, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yes, y'all can definitely catch Omari on some of our past episodes talking about some of the work that he does in the city. And yes, all of these things are certainly connected Today, we are talking about public housing, surveillance, policing, and we've been following the stories coming out of public housing neighborhoods around the increased surveillance with the license plate readers, as well as the ongoing police violence. Can you give us a little bit of the rundown of what's been going on? I guess recently, I'll say like in the past like year or so, we've seen like a a real increase in police interaction, uh, public housing. It kind of was brought on by the last CEO that was there, Mr. Duncan, and he created this new position called the Director of Public Safety. And that the Director of Public Safety, the person who was brought on is, you know, it's a former police officer, former ATF agent with a lot of like ties into the uh, the law enforcement community locally and statewide. And so a lot of the initiatives that he's brought forward have been like lots of new surveillance cameras. Uh, this newest thing is the, the license plate readers, which I think there are already active uh, license plate readers to read people's license plates are uh, coming in and out of public housing. And actually when this new public safety director came on. That was the first time when they started having uh, police officers in the board of commissioner meetings also. What we saw was like the director, uh, Brian Swan, we saw him guarding doors, you know, preventing people from coming into uh, board meetings. And uh, there would be like a police officer stationed at the other one, you know, and then it it started being like uh, that there would be like several police officers in the uh, board of commissioner meetings, you know, and I'm not really, I'm not really sure like what the purpose of that is, you know, there's never been like any violence or anything um, at the commissioner meetings, but it's kind of uh, intimidating. Um, It kind of makes it, uh, gives it a different feel (laughs) 
And these are public meetings. Right, right. Wow, and they just started arming them with police, basically. Yeah, and I, I guess that was something that was brought on by the new uh, director of public safety. And, and so you kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, in terms of, you know, the surveillance and uh, the intimidation uh, aspect of that, but what do you think are the other implications of hyper surveillance that's taking place right now in terms of LPRs and, and cameras and being at the meetings with cops? And Well, like, okay, my first, one of my first um, efforts in public housing, one of my first organizing efforts was around um, the, a proposal that they had put forward to require parking decals on the streets in public housing and to, um, to start towing cars. And so at the time that, that that proposal was put forward, I was doing a lot of like research on like how transportation impacts uh, people's housing choice. You know, you can consider like towing people's cars to be like a form of policing, you know what I mean? Um, even if it's not a police officer doing it. But um, it kind of, in my mind, results in like a thinning out of the population, you know, but, you know, they have this, that barring policy where a cop, any cop in the state of Virginia can basically just bar you from public housing. Pretty, it's pretty vague reasons, you know, it says uh, for something that might be like affecting the peaceful enjoyment of other residents, that's something that he he's deciding what that, you know, peaceful enjoyment looks like or whatever. But I think that all of these policies result in like a thinning out of the population. Um, you know, if you're towing cars, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that, you know, is not going to be able to deal with that. If you're, if you're barring people from the premises, a certain segment of the population is going to be removed. Some people don't want to be around licensed plate readers, you know, for whatever reason, particularly in low income communities, you know, sometimes, you know, our insurance might not be up to date or the tags ain't in our name or whatever, you know, we just trying to make it work out here, you know, like, and some people say like, well, your, your, you know, your car should be up to date and all of that anyway, you know, but the simple reality is that that's not what it's looking like in low income communities, you know, so I think that it's just really interesting that there's so many uh, ways that populations are being thinned out (laughs) in public housing. You know, that even the, the redevelopment plans, you know, are calling for uh, uh, increasing the percentage of like single single couple units, you know, one in, one in two bedrooms and a lot of the three and four bedrooms are being reduced. It, it really is clear that, and particularly like uh, youth, you know, when they're moving like three bedrooms and four bedrooms, you know, you're basically saying that you don't want no, no black youth in the city. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is really powerful, right? Because we know that traffic stops are a gateway to incarceration, whether or not they're locking people up on the spot. You know, there's collateral consequences that come to getting a traffic ticket and, and not paying it like you're talking about, whether it's displacement that's going to lead somebody maybe into a cage, you know, what, whatever it may be. So I think that's really important. As someone who's been a longtime resident of Richmond, you know, how have you seen policing kind of expand in, in recent years? I know you've been here since all the Daryl Smith's been on, so. I mean, now we have these agreements for, you know, surveillance planes and stuff with other localities. You know, we got drones flying around and stuff. We got 
VCU has expanded their jurisdiction throughout the city, you know, so, um, and I'm really concerned about that. I, you know, though, I don't know, like, <laughs> that just seems kind of crazy like, to have campus police, you know, running around throughout the city and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've been stopped in public housing by police and in under the like suspicion of trespassing when I'm just there visiting a friend. I've, I've had police come up to my car and get me out of the car and everything. And yeah, I mean, it's, that's happened to me. I think that's happened to me a couple of times in public housing. I've had it happen to friends. I've had, oh, my brother, he, he got a trespassing charge when he was just walking through and he had to go to court and the cop just didn't show up. So it was dismissed. You know what I'm saying? But that just shows you like the harassment that happens, you know, in public housing. I think I saw an article recently in the Richmond Times-Dispatch about how those charges or convictions around trespassing can actually bar you from getting into public housing. Is that true? Mm, I don't know. I haven't looked. I, I actually haven't looked at it in that context. I know that there are. I'll send you the article so you have it. Oh, okay, okay. But it was written by Mark Robinson, and basically it said that RRHA has banned 10,000 people from public housing over the years. And it, you know, highlighted the story of one person who had a trespassing charge from after, at a school, after school or something like that, and wasn't able to get housing and was, you know, banned from being able to get it. And so just thinking about the implications of something like a trespassing charge to being able to actually get public housing down the line. What a mess. And it's kind of like through all this surveillance, through all this intimidation, they're effectively like almost setting a curfew without setting a curfew, right? Folks know they need to be inside because if they're going to be outside, you likely to catch some type of ticket, some type of charge, some type of interaction with the police. And I think that's really important because people People talk about sundown towns, but effectively that's what's being instituted in the courts right now. Yeah, and it's it's really crazy because like the the type of things that are going on, they likely wouldn't be tolerated in any other part of the city. You know, um, one thing that has always stuck out to me is that when you know Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project when they got that data about the, the, I can't remember what the official term is, but basically the stop and frisk that were happening um, throughout the city. And when they were plotted on a map, you could see the concentration was in public housing. And it was a really high concentration in Jackson Ward in uh, Gilpin Court, you know? And um, it's just interesting to see, like just my experiences in Gilpin Court, you know, and just hearing, uh, things about, you know, particular officers running wild throughout Gilpin Court. It's just crazy to see that, like, you, we actually have the data and we can see it, you know, but it's not really, uh, it's not changing. Yeah, because this is not just numbers on a paper for people, you know, like, people are living out these real statistics, these real, like, reports that other folks are just observing throughout the city, but this is, like, people's day-to-day. Um, and I think that's really important that like we don't abstract what's happening into just numbers like right people are living this experience day to day being terrorized being antagonized and th- and that's important that we humanize those numbers in those reports that we're seeing coming out 
Yeah. You guys saw that video of the brother in Wickham Court? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was uh if you you look in the video, that was uh that was the public safety director that was in the video. What it looked like in the video was that the public safety director saw firearms on in a car or something, or maybe, you know, maybe he saw people with firearms and he called the police. And then they ended up like escalating the situation and just basically barring them from the property right there, you know. And it's just so crazy because, you know, they put out this rosy press release and said, oh, we work with the Commonwealth attorney. They, they claim that they worked with Central Virginia Legal Aid Society on, on one article that I read. You know, both of those organizations said that they didn't help them <laughs> write that uh, that policy. But, um, you know, you put out this rosy press releases like, oh, a family friendly barment policy. And you actually see a family being disrupted right there in the video because that man was going to see his child. You know, he was going to the mother of his child's home. And so it's just, <laughs> it's just really crazy. Like to see that contrast is like, it's a, like, it's like even just saying that it's family friendly. It's just a bold faced lie. It's family separation happening in real time. Yeah, like the exact opposite. It's crazy. Yes, and we will definitely make sure that that video is available to folks so that they can see it and see what's going on. But yeah, I just wanted to echo that this is stuff that's happening in real time. It's not just numbers or, you know, things that we're just sharing online, but these are people in our community that are dealing with this terrorism ongoing. And so when we say we keep us safe, we have to also expand that to thinking about our whole community and our action plan for that. So speaking of action plan, Omari, how can we follow you? How can we support this work and the things that you are doing in the city? Well, you can reach me through email at omari at justiceforall.org. And that's the number four, O-M-A-R-I, Omari, justiceforall.org. I have a couple of like social media outlets, Leaders of the New South on Instagram. Twitter comes and goes. Like, I don't know, Twitter's a, it's an interesting world. <laughs> it's an interesting world. So like, I'm not on there as regularly. But also, uh, I have uh, Leaders of the New South Community Council for Housing, a good Facebook outlet for me where I put a lot of information out there. Um, right now, you know, we're just, in like kind of like a campaign just to increase uh, resident participation in like public housing uh, meetings and things like that. So um, I've been posting a lot of a lot of the invites and information about how to attend those meetings on uh, Instagram. Are there any meetings coming up soon that you know about? Well, on uh, September 13th is the Administration and Finance Committee meeting. That meeting is at 3 p.m. They have another administration and finance committee meeting uh, on the 20th. And then on the 20th is also the real estate committee meeting. And those meetings are pretty interesting. Actually, administration and finance committee is kind of interesting because you get to hear about like where the money is going and, and you, you hear about how much surplus they have and what they're not doing with it and stuff. And the real estate committee meeting, you know, you'll hear about what properties they're, you know, they plan on like selling off or acquiring and whatnot, stuff like that. So 
the meet, those committee meetings are, are pretty interesting. They haven't put up the notice for the, the board, the main board meeting yet. But all of the meetings, you know, they take public comment at all of the meetings. You just have to like sign up the day before. Well, we will certainly spread the word and check out your platforms for the main board meeting as well for this month. And Nomi, was there anything else that you wanted to add? You know, we just wrapped up Black August celebrating and struggling forward to, to end incarceration in the prison industrial slave complex. So I just wanted wanted to know for our listeners, you could tell us in your words why the struggle for public housing, the struggle for public land is so deeply connected to that struggle to end policing. Damn, that is a great question. I'm glad you asked that because I, I don't get to talk about, oh, well, it, often there's not much space to really talk about like why public housing is so important to me. I mean, I don't know if this like, might not directly answer the question, but public housing, to me, in a capitalist world, you know, in a capitalist society where everything is going like, you know, to the highest bidder and white people are already, you know, set up to be successful in this society under capitalism, you know, and we're, we're, we're oppressed, you know, economically uh, suppressed. And so like public land to me is like it's our one of our biggest opportunities to even have control over anything. You know, public housing, the program that we know of it as like came about like through it was like a, a continuation of like the housing that that came out like right after uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and like people like rioted all over the country and everything and they you know they had the Kerner Commission report and everything and they're just like what's going on like how do we deal with why are these people so angry what do we do what do we do and then like within months you know they had the I don't know if it was the HUD Act it might have been the HUD Act but I think the HUD Act came out a little later but the HUD Act basically established public housing and to me people can say like oh you know there's more uh white people on welfare and this and that there's white people in public housing but to me the public housing program that we know of it as with all of its uh economic benefits not it's not supposed to be just oh somewhere to live you know it's supposed to be economic benefits and giving residents uh resident management and stuff like that like giving them the ability to to create stuff for themselves and their community there's more in there than just somewhere to live you know, and that's what people have allowed the program to look like and to, to put that in people's minds that, oh, this is just it's just people living there, you know, but it's really it was supposed to be like an engine for black people to create economic uh, opportunities for themselves in the community. And so, like, that's why it's really important to me. But like, as as I see people saying, like, oh, you know, HUD's HUD's uh, HUD's decreasing their funding, you know, of housing, you know, or we just have to, that's just is what it is, you know, like, oh, we, we, we have all this maintenance, this, this backdated that we haven't done, you know, uh, deferred maintenance or whatever. And it's like, I don't know. I, I just don't understand how, well, I, I can't say I don't, I don't understand, but it, it, it kind of annoys me that people like minimize what the public housing program is supposed to be into just, you know, oh, it's okay if it's getting defunded, you know, or it's okay that, you know, 
that are the section three requirements that those those targets haven't been hit. You know, we haven't been given opportunities to minority businesses and things like that. You know, and that's the stuff you'll see at those administration and finance committee meetings. You'll see just how piss poor that they are with uh, minority business enterprises, you know, doing contracts with them. You'll see how piss poor they do with uh, section three hires. And they, they section three is like, you know, low income uh, residents. Uh, how they're supposed to get like priority for contracts and things like that, but they can't even hit the goals for hiring section three residents. And, and, and even the hiring, like that's not even the biggest concern for me. The biggest concern for me is the the contracting opportunities and that they're not setting, you know, I mean, it, it would benefit them as well. It would benefit the housing authority as well. So, you know, I think there's so many creative ways that we could be investing in the residents of public housing and creating success stories. But, you know, a lot of that isn't happening. So that's why public housing is important to me. That's why it's, um, I think it's a, a fight that everyone should be in. Like, people, I don't think people should just, you know, be like, oh, you know, they're demolishing public housing. They need to do that. They need to privatize and everything. And then it's like, then black people no longer have control over the program. Mm. Yes, we got to raise the consciousness. We got to let no people know we got to reclaim that because when we talking about taking back the land, that's where it starts. It's going to start right there. So I thank you for really sharing that and for uh, sitting down and speaking with us on all of this. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yes, and I certainly have family that has lived in public housing, still does and thriving there right and so we don't want communities to be demolished (laughs) um this plan of getting rid of public housing i really appreciate you lifting the value of keeping those spaces and investing in them and getting the police the hell out of there uh, and letting people just live their free lives so omari thank you for coming on to our show again it's been great to see your face and hear your voice you know you're always welcome here Follow Omari and email him if you have stories or experiences that you would like to share. Thanks for having me. Well, that is all for this week on Race Capital. Reminder that Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. As always, solidarity to those involved in the struggle. And thank you for listening.
Jabba. 